If you will, make your way to Luke chapter 13. We'll consider today verses 10 through 17 in a message entitled, Set Free. A couple of months back, 344 schoolboys were abducted in northwestern Nigeria. A government science secondary school was overrun and under siege by jihadist militants who were claiming to be with Boko Haram. That's been disputed since. They're not real sure who the group was, but they had both political and financial motivations. It was one of the largest mass kidnappings of hostages in history. A week after the kidnapping, following negotiations, the boys were handed over in the forest of a neighboring state and were taken for medical treatment. They had been set free, but even though they had been set free, they had endured some days of acute stress and trauma. And set free, as you might imagine, they were quite joyful, as were their families with whom they were reunited. The focus of our scripture passage in Luke chapter 13 is a woman who was in a difficult situation. She needed to be set free. And Jesus, in his love and concern for her, met her where she was and set her free. As we learn about how Jesus set this woman free from her sickness, I think we gain an understanding of what Jesus can do for us when we come to him in faith. I begin reading in verse 10 of Luke chapter 13. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Verse 15, but the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And then verse 17, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. I want you to first note here that we need to be set free because we are broken. We need to be set free because we are broken. Now, this woman in the story was physically broken. I want you to picture her just for a moment. She's bent over. She could not straighten up at all. She's essentially doubled over. No doubt she's in significant pain. 
Every day is a struggle for her just to get by in life. For her to be able to see anything around her, she would have had to have wrenched her head to one side or the other, and even then, she would only have had a limited view of what was going on. She was physically broken. This woman was also spiritually broken because she had been disabled, the scripture says, by a spirit for 18 years. We learn a little further in the story that she was an Israelite and I think presumably a believer in God. I'll come back to that in a moment. There's no mention of Jesus casting out demons here. He simply speaks of her condition. I think that she was not demon-possessed, but rather she was demon-oppressed, and in that she was spiritually broken. The woman was also socially broken. She would have been an outcast simply because of the oddity of her situation. When people encountered her and she was in such a pitiful state, they would not have known what to do with her or exactly how to respond to her. She lived in a posture of forced humility with her face constantly toward the dust of the earth. And we aren't given details, but apparently she kept her faith. And the reason that we draw this idea of her keeping her faith is that while she had not been healed for more than 18 years, what did she do? She returned again to the synagogue. I think that she was believing that if God did not choose to heal her circumstance, that he was still worthy of worship. That in and of itself, that this woman was at the synagogue, a place where God was to be worshipped, was a testimony of faith and that God is worthy. I wonder, is that our response, even when we're not seeing an immediate deliverance from a particular situation? Do we still continue to worship or do we tend to give up on God and to forget that God can be trusted even when we're waiting? And before we come to faith in Jesus and are saved, the scripture is very clear that we are utterly broken by our sin and enslaved to it. We could define sin as missing the mark of God's holiness scripturally. It can be defined as any thought, action, or attitude that falls short of God's glory. The truth of Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we were created for the purpose of knowing God and worshiping him. I would say to you that the, the sum total of what the Christian faith is all about is about knowing God and worshiping God. This is why he has made us. And yet sin separates us from God and causes us to be broken. Listen to what Romans 6 and verse 20 and following says. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Now listen to this. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, 
eternal life. So before we come to repentance and faith, we are slaves to sin and we're in bondage to the tyranny of it. But the reality is sometimes, even as believers, we're broken and we're broken by our circumstances, much like the woman in the story. We are devastated because we find ourselves living in a sin-fallen world and sometimes the situations that we find ourselves in, in this sin-fallen world, put us in a very difficult area of life. It could be a long-standing physical infirmity that is not leaving us, that has caused us to be broken. Or it could be life-besetting sins that we go back to again and again rather than living in the freedom that God has given us in Christ. It could be the bitterness of unforgiveness that causes our hearts to be in chains and not to be free to serve God as we should. I'm reminded today as we observe and celebrate the Lord's Supper of the Passover in the book of Exodus. The Passover, of course, being a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ. And the book of Exodus tells us about a time that was about 400 years after Joseph and his brothers and the Pharaoh he once had served died. New leadership rose up and the new leadership that rose up was threatened by the Hebrews because they were multiplying and there were so many of them. The Israelites were enslaved and subdued under some rather harsh conditions. But God had a plan and he was going to rescue his people. And when he rescued his people, he was going to set them on a path toward the promised land. And in doing so, part of his plan was to raise up a deliverer and that deliverer's name was Moses. And Moses would be the one who would bring the message first to the Pharaoh that he needed to let the people of God go. And then the message to the people of what they needed to do to exercise their faith in God. So you remember God sent Moses to the Pharaoh with the command to let the people go. The Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused. So what did God do? God brought plagues. And the 10th and final plague was the worst of all because it would bring death to the firstborn in Egypt. But God told his people to sacrifice a spotless lamb. And when they sacrificed that spotless lamb, they were to mark their doorposts and their lentils with its blood, Exodus chapter 12. And then when the Lord passed through the nation and passed over his people, they would be spared and then they would be delivered on their way toward the promised land. Now, it's interesting. This narrative is told time and again in the scripture. It's not just one time. But this Exodus narrative and the significance of the Passover is told over and again. And the reason being is it pointed toward the Messiah. It pointed toward the fact that Jesus would be the ultimate Passover lamb. He would be the fulfillment of what God had promised. He would be the one who would take away the sins of the world. And while we need to be set free because we are broken... The second idea I want to show you here is that only Jesus can set us free. Only Jesus can set us free. Now back to our story. Why did Jesus go to the synagogue that day? To worship and to teach. It's an interesting footnote here that 
this turned out to be his final recorded ministry in such a place. The Bible indicates that Jesus saw the woman and he called her. Uh, The meaning of the wording there is that he summoned her to where he was. You might imagine that she would have struggled uh, as she made her way to him. Jesus refers to her as woman. He's identifying in that moment with her brokenness and her suffering. He is showing her a tremendous amount of respect and his value for her as a child of God. And Jesus met her where she was, and he said, you are free of your disability. Or as the old translation goes, woman, thou art loosed. She was loosed and set free from her infirmity. With just a word, she was set free. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was restored. No longer would this woman have to shuffle around from place to place. No longer would she be deformed and bent over where she could not even stand up straight. But she had been healed. And her affliction had been caused by the oppression of evil. But Jesus had rebuked that evil and set her free. Now we know that everyone wants freedom in this life. After all, we live in a society that sees freedom as probably the highest of all virtues. It's certainly important, especially when it comes to religious freedom and our ability to preach the gospel and to do the work of God. But we also recognize that freedom in Jesus Christ is not the same as political freedom. It is not the same as social freedom. It is focused on the glory of God more than it's focused on self. It brings our good But it begins and ends with God. And the truth is, spiritually speaking, we are broken and in bondage to our sin if we do not know Jesus. We are under the penalty, the presence, and the power of sin. But the Bible says in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth, of course, is embodied in the Word of God as He has revealed Himself to us, but the truth is preeminently embodied in Jesus Christ, the very revelation of God in the flesh. Galatians 5 and verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. To be set free from our sin in Jesus and to be saved by him means that we have full assurance of our right standing with God. You understand that the gospel is not about try harder and do better. It's about the finished work of Christ and what he has done on your behalf. You understand that the greatest need that any individual has is to be in right standing with God. Because our sin causes us to be separated from God. Our sin causes us to be an enemy of God. Our sin causes us to be on the way to hell. But Jesus Christ has given himself for us on the cross And he's the one who sets us free. He's the one who reconciles us to God. He's the one who gives us right standing in the presence of a holy God. The only reason that we will be able to stand someday when we enter into the presence of God, either when we individually pass from this life to the next or Jesus returns, is because we have been declared righteous through the blood of Jesus. 
It will only be because God sees us not as the sinners that we were, but he sees us through the holy white righteousness of Jesus. And he declares us righteous in him. And I want you to know that your freedom cost Jesus his life on the cross. Colossians 1 and verse 13 and 14 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I remember the story from almost 20 years ago now of the New Tribes missionaries, Martin and Gracia Burnham. They were on holiday, having served faithfully for a long time in the Philippines at a resort in that nation. And they were kidnapped by Abu Sayyaf. Government commandos came for their rescue after they had endured a long and harrowing circumstance in the jungles. They had been on the run. Their kidnappers had wanted money. They had wanted to make a statement through that. Uh, They wanted ransom money for their freedom. And tragically, in a two-hour exchange of gunfire, Martin Burnham was killed. Gracia, who suffered a gunshot wound to her leg, survived only for one reason. And that was because the dead, lifeless body of her husband had been rolled over on top of her, shielding her. Her captors could not tell if she was dead or alive. After she was rescued and received the medical attention that she needed, eventually she returned back home to Kansas filled with bittersweet emotions. She still speaks, and there's been books written on uh, their lives and and their service uh, to the Lord. She, of course, was indescribably grateful for being set free, but she was also somberly aware that her release had not been without a gut-wrenching cost. And that was the life of her husband. But she understood that the death of her husband was also a part of God's plan. And she said, that is God's liking. That probably was Martin's destiny. Now, I want to make a point here. Once again, freedom from sin for us is free. The grace flows abundantly but it is not cheap. It cost God his only son. And in Jesus, you've been set free to serve God and to fulfill his purpose for your life. In Jesus, you've been set free not to do what you want to do, but to do what is right. In Jesus, you have been set free from fear and you've been set toward a life of faithfulness and only Jesus can set you free. And then finally, When we've been set free, we should glorify God. Now, the woman who was healed, it says glorified God. Let me just translate that for you. That was a happy woman. I mean, she had come to the synagogue, and undoubtedly, as we've said, she believed in God, but she had probably resigned herself to the fact that she was never going to be delivered from that physical circumstance. She went that day, not unlike any other day that she had gone, and yet she was healed and set free, and she began to glorify God. 
Did you know that the only right response for us when we are set free from our sin, when God delivers us to himself, when we have right standing with him, the only right response is to glorify God? We should be the happiest people of all. How could it be that Christians at times could be some of the most unhappy, most critical people that there are in the world, always finding what is wrong with other people, always looking at the negative side of things. What kind of testimony does that give to the world? That doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't see the reality of the situations around us and call them like we see them. But what it means is that we are a people who, has been de- who have been delivered. We have much to rejoice in. And our testimony should reflect that. Now, there's a flip side here to the story. When all of this took place, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. Say, how could you be indignant that the Son of God just healed somebody because Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath? Now, at face value, his dogmatism over the Sabbath seemed like a good thing. After all, God had established the Sabbath principle. It was intended to be eternal. God rested after he had created the world and called it good. He set forth that principle of the Sabbath to remind us that we cannot be on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's to be a day where we're to step back. And when we step back, we are worshiping God and we are honoring that principle. But the problem is... This man was caught up in his own legalism and he could not see that Jesus was the fulfillment and that Jesus had brought ultimate freedom. So he said, look, there's six days men ought to work. You can come and you can be healed on one of those days, not on the Sabbath day. One commentator noted that the leader did not even have the courage to address Jesus directly but rather he addressed the people with a message that he meant for Jesus. But let me tell you, if Jesus is in the house and he's addressed, he's going to have something to say about it. And here he calls him out and anyone who would agree with this way of thinking out as hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who claims to believe something but then acts in another way. The word comes from a Greek term that means actor, literally one who wears a mask, one who pretends to be what he is not. And the scripture soundly condemns hypocrisy as sin. We do not want to be hypocrites. We want our lives as much as is possible by the power of the Spirit of God and the truth of the Word of God as we follow the Son of God to be consistent with who we say we are. Isaiah condemned hypocrisy in Isaiah 29 in verse 13. He said, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. So what this says is it is possible for you to know what is right. It is possible for you to come to a church just like this week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, and yet your life not be consistent with what you say you believe. And that would, in fact, make you a hypocrite. And we don't want to be hypocrites. So Jesus draws their attention to an illustration of their own behavior. 
Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it to water? Shouldn't this woman be set free? Shouldn't she be loosed on the Sabbath? Jesus is making the point that she was worthy of care and concern. After all, she was a daughter of Abraham. She was a Jewish woman. She was part of the covenant people. She evidenced that by her attendance at the synagogue. She had been bound by Satan and been in that condition for 18 years. She needed to be set free. And the Bible says when Jesus said all of these things that the adversaries were put to shame. Glorifying God, watch this, means to exalt his greatness, and give him honor because he alone is worthy. Let me say that again. Glorifying God means to exalt his greatness and give him honor because he alone is worthy. How do we do that practically? We glorify God in our faith. Everything that is not of faith is sin. We can glorify God in our worship. The very heart of worship is ascribing glory to God alone, where we come to him with sincere hearts and we praise his name. We come with no pretenses. We come not trying to hide anything from God. We come with everything out in the open and we come to God believing that he receives us in his grace and we worship him. And it is true in a sense that all of life is worship, but I want to caution you on one point because worship is also a very specific activity in which we focus our hearts and our minds fully on the Lord personally and also together in the congregation. So if we say everything in life is worship, it can become the reality that nothing in life is actually worship. But if we come to God offering ourselves to him and we submit ourselves to him, surrender ourselves to him daily, and we keep on being filled with the spirit and we worship him in our private lives, and then we come together in the congregation, that's a special time of worship that we cannot neglect, we cannot afford to. And one of the things that has most concerned me over this past year that we have just gone through is will people begin to see worship congregationally as expendable? Will it be just something else that we involve ourselves in if we don't have anything else better to do? Listen, when we come together as the people of God, We're coming together to hear from the Word of God. This is where our authority and our direction comes from. We are coming together to pray. We're coming together to baptize and to see people publicly profess their faith in Christ. We're coming together to observe the body and the blood of Jesus because he has commanded us to do so as often as we do it in remembrance of him. We are coming together to sing and to lift up our voices to him and to be reminded of things like the power of the cross. We come together to give and to support the work that God is doing and more. And we ought to give ourselves to that. And then as we do that, we glorify God in all of life. Faithfulness is an expression of faith, especially as it results in our works of service to honor God. When we've been set free, we should glorify God. I give you this and I'm going to close. May all peoples rejoice over the glorious things that God is doing. Note here in this passage that the woman first glorified God because she was happy, man. She, she'd been delivered. She'd been healed. She had so much to rejoice over. But the praise began to ripple through everybody that was there. It began to ripple through that crowd because 
They were glorifying Jesus and they were glorifying God for all the good things that were, were happening. And should that not be the result of why we exist as a church? Listen, friends, we don't come together just to go through the motions. We come together, yes, because it's the right thing to do. But we come with an expectant faith. We come believing that God is going to do something through us, that God is going to use our lives. When we live for him and we surrender what we have to him, we are saying, God, you alone are worthy. And we give our best to you. We do not give our leftovers to you. We're not living a faith that is a faith of convenience. We are living a faith that is a faith of discipleship. And discipleship is costly. And we ought to give our very best in honor to the king. And I close with Psalm 86, just five verses, beginning in verse 8. May this be our collective prayer. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. And then listen to what verse 12 says. I will praise you with all my heart, Lord my God, and will honor your name forever. Let's bow our heads together for a moment.